oral tradition has been shown to be carried over at least 40,000 years. And so for listeners that may not understand oral tradition, oral tradition was spoken in a very metaphorical, very colored way. So if you're going to remember a story, you don't color it black and white. You color it every color of the universe. Welcome back, Book Society listeners. We're now in part two of this interview, which for you is week two. If you listened to last week's episode with Dr. Paulette Steves, my first question and the first thing that the listeners need to understand is tell us about the Clovis first. I was going to say Clovis first hypothesis. I'll say tell us about the Clovis first fallacy, what it is and why it's complete and total bullshit and very demonstrably total bullshit. The earliest archaeologists said we'd been here 3,000 years. You look at it, there's no scientific data to support that. Jesse Figgins found what they call a Clovis point because it was found near Clovis, New Mexico. It's a fluted stone tool in the rib of an extinct bison that had been extinct for 10,000 years. And it took him a couple of years of fighting and arguing, but he got archaeologists to accept that, you know, indigenous people had been here 10,000 years. It's been stuck there since the 1920s. And so the Clovis first hypothesis, they first said that nothing that beautiful, those kind of advanced tools could have been made here. They had to be brought from somewhere else. They spent millions of dollars looking for Clovis tools in Asia and Europe and never found any. Clovis tools were invented here in the Americas. But the one thing that's really problematic with that is that they started talking about the Clovis people. So everywhere they found a Clovis tool, they thought all the Clovis people were here. There's no such thing as the Clovis people. There's no such thing anywhere in the world of a cultural group that's bigger than a smaller regional area because culture adapts and changes, languages change, people change. It was a stone tool technology that a lot of groups shared, but there was no such thing ever as the Clovis people. Culture is language, clothes, dance, teaching, food, housing, marriage rights. Culture is huge, and you don't see a culture the size of two continents. Like, no, but it's so embedded that I went into the library at UMass Amherst, and I was looking in the cultural anthropology section, and they had the Cherokee people, the Creek people, and then they had the Clovis people. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so wrong. The Clovis were never a people. And what that did, though, archaeologists use that, it erases the diversity of the people that were here. So there was an extreme amount of diversity, even with 5% of the people being left after contact. There's over, I think, 6,000 different cultural groups in North and South America. That's huge. Over half the language families of the world. That's immense cultural diversity. So when archaeologists continue to say things like we're Asians from Asia and the Clovis people, they erase all of that diversity. They don't acknowledge it. That's one of the most convincing arguments in your book, I thought. And it was also the one that made me laugh out loud, where you say that there's never been a hemisphere-wide uniform civilization. So we're supposed to believe that in, say, a thousand square miles of the Middle East, there lived and died thousands of distinct civilizations over the course of 2,000 years. But in North America and South America, there was just one group of people who all made these arrowheads, and they were just basically the same people, but there were millions of them living over two continents. That really was the theory of archaeology. So the fact that an academic could look you in the eye and say that, some of them still will, but it's amazing that they still use this argument. 
a lot of archaeologists teach about us, geneticists and archaeologists that were Asians from Asia. Asia did not exist 12,000 years ago, and neither did Asians. If they said something like some of the ancestors of Native Americans may have come from Northern Asia or Siberia, the areas we know today, yes, okay, then you're making a more factual statement. You're acknowledging us as Native Americans. You're not erasing that. So I think archaeology has a long way to go to decolonize its own language and to quit erasing us from our lands. I got a good amount of shit from my episode with Teokasen. And the reason is that I don't think people realize how political and controversial archaeology is because your job as an archaeologist, and correct me if I'm wrong, is to dredge up the truth from the past. And that is often truth that people wish would stay hidden. Can you talk about some of the resistance you've encountered as an archaeologist doing the kind of work that you do? Well, this is another thing that people aren't taught in education is how archaeologists have worked as handmaidens of the state. All universities are connected to state funds. Grants and research is connected to state funds. And other archaeologists, a few from Latin America, have discussed this in their work, how archaeologists are handmaidens of the state and how they've erased indigenous history. So. When we look at the history of archaeology in America, one of the first archaeologists for the Smithsonian, Alex Herlishka, said we'd only been here 3,000 years. That wasn't based on any solid body of data, but just because he said it, it was so. Jesse Figgins from the Denver Museum then excavated out at the Folsom and Clovis sites in New Mexico. It took him a few years of arguing to get it accepted that, oh, maybe the indigenous people have been here for 10,000 years. Herlushka never accepted. He went to his grave denying it. And it's kind of been stuck there since the 1920s. So when you discuss that kind of racial bias in archaeology, not everyone appreciates it because then I don't become the truth teller, even though this is all documented. Everything in my book is based on well-documented events in archaeology. So there's no denying that it took place, but it makes me the angry Indian, right? Because I don't agree with them and I'm dredging up this past. Well, hello, you know, if you talk the truth about archaeology, this is where the roots for the Holocaust started. The Nazis were obsessed with archaeology. There's a reason why Indiana Jones is always fighting Nazis. It's because they were obsessed with finding a historical archaeological justification for the atrocities they were committing. No country or state is any different. They all want that. Right. But the whole theory of having people that were racially different are inferior came from American archaeologists and their insistence that it's all right to put people out of their misery, you know, if they don't fit our ideal of perfect, or we can say who's perfect and who's criminal and who's not perfect, and they're genetically inferior. And of course, then there was the linear scale from savage to civilized, and, you know, all the white Europeans were civilized and all the Indians were savage, so we weren't civilized. This is the framework that archaeology in the Americas grew up in. After the Holocaust, physical anthropologists began to move away from that sort of genetic determinism discussion and try to move into things like medical anthropology and other fields. But this is where the Nazis got their ideology for that. That's documented. Why can't we talk honestly about it? It was such a dangerous field saying that any archaeology in the Americas was older than 12,000 years was so dangerous that it was called an area of academic suicide. 
So our job as archaeologists is to understand the human past, to read the signs in the soil, to read the artifacts and to understand the human past. But in the Americas, you couldn't understand it all than 12,000 years or you were crazy or insane or you were fired. You were a lunatic. That's not academic. Is it racism? Why would that be? Why would it be dangerous to talk about sites older than 12,000 years? And even now they're limited to maybe 15,000 years. Why can't we openly talk about human evolution? Early hominids were in Asia uh, 2 million years ago. They're saying that modern humans were in Africa, maybe as 60,000 to 200,000 years. They were in other areas of Europe at over 300,000 years. So why can't we talk about that? If people were around most of the globe for that long, did they get to Northern Asia and stop and say, oh, we can't go farther? Why did they not come to the Western Hemisphere when mammals were coming and going? And so these are very good questions, very valid questions to ask. But when you start asking and talking about them right away, you face, oh, no, no, they couldn't have been here. And everybody comes up with reasons why it was impossible when they'd never thought about, wait, we're archaeologists. We're supposed to think about what's possible and why. Tell us about decolonizing the academy. That's the first chapter of your book. Tell us what you mean by that. Most of the education and theories and everything that's taught comes from five areas of the world. So what if you added 95% of the knowledge that's missing, right? It's very Western-centric. And the only thing that's right and the only way to do right things are the way that a few Western scholars have said. People are being now forced to acknowledge there are other ways of knowing, being, and doing. So I think that my dissertation was the first one in American archaeology framed in Indigenous method and theory. So I included as much as I could oral traditions, considerations of Indigenous languages, Indigenous stories about their own genesis, and not just archaeological sites. Indigenous method and theory is centered on respect, relationality, reciprocity. Everything is related. And if we're not doing something that gives back to the people, what's the point of doing it? Reciprocity. Your research is not about you and your question. It's about this greater community. So you do work that serves a community and a purpose and you do truth telling and you share everybody's truth and everybody's voice as much as you can. So I think I had four different PhD committees I almost didn't get through. I had to get a professor who was Indigenous friendly from a little community college in Montana on my committee. I had to get a fourth person to be the head of my committee. There was a lot of attempts to push me out of graduate school, but I stuck it out. This book you're talking about almost didn't get you a dissertation? Yeah. If you had told me that this was a story that happened in 1890, I would say, well, you know, people were weird and racist back then. For the listeners who are into archaeology, pick this book up and read it. It's about as solid an archaeological text as you could hope to find anywhere in any discipline. And the fact that you had trouble getting it through is a little bit disturbing, frankly. I had a number of committee members. My first one passed away, unfortunately. And then there were a couple others that it wouldn't matter what my dissertation was or what I was saying. I was Indigenous, so they were trying to push me out. One professor finally stepped up to be my committee head. 
none of the female faculty there, even some faculty of color would be on my committee or be my committee head. And it wasn't just because of my work. It's because I was indigenous. I was honest and I was something they hadn't seen. <laughs> but, you know, I always trust creator gave me this work to do. They've always had my back, my ancestors and supported me and I got through. So tell us a little bit about the role of oral tradition in native cultures. Oral tradition has been shown to be carried over at least 40,000 years. And so for listeners that may not understand oral tradition, oral tradition was spoken in a very metaphorical, very colored way. So if you're going to remember a story, you don't color it black and white. You color it every color of the universe so that it's this big, bright picture that you never lose. There's one site on the Palm de Terre River, the Kasimwik site in the Osage have an oral tradition linked to that area. And the Osage had an oral tradition about these giant beasts were on the land and it became unsafe for the Osage to hunt. And they were really suffering from that. And then one day the beasts, which were mammoths and mastodons, had a giant battle, a fight, and they killed each other. A lot of them killed each other. And so the Osage went out after and in thanks, they burned the bodies of the beasts. And every year on that day, they would have a ceremony on that site to thank the beasts. The land was stolen. They were pushed off their land and they couldn't keep up their ceremonies, but they told their stories about the ceremonies and about the battle of the beasts to some archaeologists. And when the settlers took over that land, they were digging, they were plowing, they were finding tons of stone tools and mammoth and mastodon bones. So archaeologists went there and had to dig. And what do they find? A lot of burnt mammoth and mastodon bones. So they find exactly what the Osage said was there. So that way you can weave the oral traditions and the evidence, the story held in the earth, I call archaeological sites stories held in the land. And you can show that their oral tradition tells you exactly how that site got there thousands of years before, because it's over 10,000 years that mammoths and mastodons have been extinct. So speaking of buried, unexpected mastodons, can you tell us about the Saruti site? It's right down the street. Well, not down the street, but pretty close to my house. Can you tell us about that site? There's a lot of archaeologists and paleogeologists and environmental specialists in Southern California that know the land really well. So it's an earthquake area. It's a fault area and it can be complicated, but it can be very easy to read. So archaeologists were wanting to make a highway connector between 5 and 15, just north of San Diego. And it wasn't that long, but I think there was 114 archaeology sites in the short span of that connector. There a lot of people down there. When they found this site, they noticed the way the bones were placed. So if an animal dies, their bones are going to be there scattered where he died. If other animals came around, they would have, you know, scattered them or chewed on them. But the bones were placed in a specific way that is not the way that you would find a set of bones from an animal that died naturally. They were also broken in a way called spiral fracturing. Now, a mammoth bone is so big that even a short-faced bear couldn't get his mouth around it and break it. It's big and it's dense. A human, though, could take a boulder and bash that bone and break it. And when you do, you leave marks on the bone and it fractures in a spiral pattern. So, they had a really strong case, the people that worked on this site, but they knew about the bias in American archaeology against older dates. And they didn't have stone tools there, but they had these giant boulders that were found with those bones. Those boulders were out of place. So like someone had to bring them there to break the bone. 
they were pretty certain that this was a human site. Problem was, it dated way earlier than was allowed. At that point, they thought between 100,000 and 300,000 years. So they waited for technology to get to a good place to date the bone. When they did it, dated to 130,000 years. More recently, they've had research done on those boulders that show the analysis that the bone from the mammoth was embedded in the boulders, in the fractures, in the cracks, in the surface. So that bone wouldn't have embedded itself in that boulder. The only way that boulder would have those bone remnants in it is if someone took that boulder and was bashing that rock. So that site is 130,000 years. I have followed the work on that site. I've studied the artifacts at the museum in San Diego, and I believe it's a really solid site. And of course, they got immediately attacked and people came up with all kinds of excuses and they answered them all very well. I think they've defended their research in the site very well. From what I followed, it seems like there really is no debate other than people with wild theories as to how it might have happened. The simplest explanation is people did it. And for listeners who don't know, because this is non-obvious, I think, the reason that ancient humans would be breaking mastodon bones is to get at the marrow, which is an advantage that because they were so huge, it's a thing that really only we would be able to get to, or like maybe a saber-toothed tiger. So it was a big source of nutrition for us. We were scavengers. Mammoth bone makes a really good point. Oh, right. So how long have human beings been crossing the ocean? Oh my God, there's some places where they say there's evidence in Crete. So they have sites there that they argue over 100,000 years, they had to use water transport to get there. So we know in some other areas, somewhere around Java, there's a site that's 800,000 years. To get to Australia, you always had to cross the Wallace line. You always needed some form of open water transport. There's a little discussion on that in my book. There's a body of evidence in a little chart about open water crossings. And so early humans were much more capable than we give them credit for. They knew how to get on a log or tie two logs together and make a raft and go somewhere right across the water. There was something I pulled out of your book that Homo erectus got to Flores something like 800,000 years before present. That's the site I was talking about. And then also northern China at 2.1, 2.4 million years. So you got early hominids walking out of Africa over 14,000 miles. And we're supposed to believe that they got to northern Asia and just stopped. So there's been a number of times in the last 2 million years when there's been a land bridge and North America and what we call northern Asia today were forested, right? So there was food for animals. We know that Horses arose in the Americas. They didn't swim to Asia or Europe. They walked across the land. Camels arose in the Americas, the first ones. Saber-toothed cats. So there's a lot of evidence that I say are provided by our four-legged relations when there was a land bridge. So my next body of work is looking at the time across the last two million years and creating data in a series of maps that show the time frames that it was very possible. When animals were coming and going, why wouldn't humans? Humans quite often followed or stalked the animals that they ate. And we do have some sites in Siberia that date to around 300,000 years. So we're supposed to believe that early hominids or whoever was there, Homo erectus or Homo sapiens, didn't ever cross that land bridge like the mammals before 12,000 years. When, by the way, there was a glacier in the way. Seriously. And that's what, where I understand Vine Deloria Jr. saying 
people don't understand the absurdity of the claims of the Clovis first hypothesis. So we're supposed to believe that people didn't come till the end of a glaciation when the land was covered in ice. When 24 or 26,000 years before mammals were coming and going, there was a land bridge, there was food. So why not? Why would the humans stop over in Northern Asia and not cross like animals? Right. Did they get there and they thought, oh, well, this is the border. We better just turn around. Yeah, we don't have a passport. <laughs> we don't have a passport. Exactly. The more I learn about the Clovis first hypothesis and the more I learn about modern North American archaeology, you really have to bend over backwards to believe some of this stuff. The explanations that you and others propose are simpler and supported by the data. One of the last things I want to ask you about. So there were these great North American civilizations why do we have scant evidence of them before a certain time? And one of the things you pointed out was that the oceans were in different places. Where are some of these sites? Well, there are a lot of sites on the land that date, you know, as old as 200,000 years in North America. And like the site they just found with the human footprints in New Mexico, right? The white sand site. Okay, so humans were there. Get out there and find the sites. Where were they living? If you had humans walking there, hey, that's not the only site. There's other sites there that people have claimed were 50,000 years old, and they've always been dismissed and denied. But the evidence is getting so strong now that people can't deny it. So all this great amount of work has been done in genetics to say that Asians came and they stayed up on the other side of Beringer for 15,000 years, and then they got here about 14,000 years ago. But hey, here's a set of human footprints that are 23,000 years old. How about that? How does that fit your theory? So you've seen geneticists and archaeologists and others working together to try to make their theories fit into this minimal time frame to try and excuse that. Maybe there was a group of people there at 15,000 years. Maybe there were 10 or 12 different ways that people came to North and South America. No story is ever that simple that there's one story. This is a huge continent over one third of the global landmass. It's got coastline everywhere. And even the East Coast, the whole continental shelf was land. So when water was drawn into the glaciers, there was a lot more land and the water distance was much shorter between what we know today as France and what we know today as the East Coast of North America. Why couldn't people cross there? If you ask Northern people today, Inuit today, could you walk for a month over the ice? Yeah, we do it all the time. It wasn't impossible. So I think there's a lot of ways the story is not simple. People have always tried to frame it. Oh, there was one group and one people and they came across there. Oh, yeah. And then in 200 years, they filled both continents. No, that doesn't work. I think we have to remain open minded to all the other stories and all of the other evidence. And a lot of it is coming to light now, which, of course, I just cheer every time a new undeniable site is published. Why do you think archaeologists in the academy are invested in perpetuating this myth? you got to remember, what's their academic capital? It's the human remains of Native Americans and First Nations people. It's the artifacts. It's everything in the land that they control. So when the NAGPRA law came into effect in the 1990s that said that museums had to list everything, share those lists with Indigenous communities and return human remains and some artifacts, archaeologists went through the roof. It was the end of archaeology. How dare they? And even to this day, if human remains are over a few thousand years, oh, you can't prove they're yours. So my undergrad work was actually genetic work, whereas an undergrad, without a genetics lab on my campus, I had another very nice lab work with me. 
I was able to help the Quapaw tribe claim over 500 ancestors that museums were refusing to return because they said, even though they came from well-known Quapaw homelands, they couldn't prove they were theirs. Well, the Quapaw asked me, could I help them? So we did genetic typing of some elders here. And of course we would have tried to match that to the ancient remains they were reclaiming. And before that second piece of work could even be done, the museums knew of course they were Quapa ancestors. They knew I had a Quapa DNA type to match it to. They gave them back. So two weeks after the first piece of my research was done, the Quapa reburied 500 ancestors. And that really showed me there that we can use science and technology and archaeology to support what communities need, right? And so our archaeologists don't often want to admit that contemporary Indigenous people might be connected to an ancient area because maybe they'll have to give something back or maybe they'll have to talk to them. It's changing and it's getting better. But I worked in field archaeology in the U.S. for five years. Archaeologists won't talk to Indigenous people to Native Americans. They don't think they have to. They're required to under NAGPRA only for areas within Indigenous communities or I think federal lands. I would want to talk to anybody, no matter where it was in the world, to understand their knowledge of that space and their ancestors. But that's how embedded racism is in areas of academia in North America. If you read stories of Mesopotamian archaeology, and the era of Hormuz Rassam and Wallace Budge, any person would read these accounts and say, Wallace Budge is an evil person who's stealing the work of a native person. Yet that exact thing is going on today in North American archaeology. And I think it'll come to light hopefully sooner than later. But it's amazing that you're doing so much and dedicating your career to bringing these stories out. Thank you. We're going to have to have you back on because this has just been too much fun. So I'm going to end by asking you the question that I ask everyone, which is to recommend two books for our listeners. I would certainly recommend Joy Harjo's book that we discussed last week. And to read deeper, it's a very delightful book to read. It's not a hard, heavy, thick book to read. She writes as a storyteller, which is what we do as Indigenous people. For sure, read Poet Warrior. A second book, I, of course, I would ask them to read my book and to challenge their worldview. So one thing I found is that when students become more informed of the true history of Indigenous people, they see them differently. And so their worldview changes. And so you're pushing back on racism. I would tell readers to read Vine Deloria's books. He was an amazing scholar. He was very honest and he broke down a lot of doors. And that's really important. But I think it's really important for readers to experience the Indigenous voice of writing and of sharing their stories. And Vine Deloria Jr. was, I think he was just a truth teller, but most people would say he was very critical of American archaeology, but he was telling the truth. And I think it really helps to open up people's minds and hearts to what those truths are. We'll have to check some of that out. And we've had on this podcast, our first episode was about Housemate of Dawn by M. Scott Mamaday, and also There, There by Tommy Orange. We also did an episode with Flynn Coleman about Joy Harjo's poetry anthology. We also did an episode about Dr. Steve's book with Teoks and Ghost Horse, and now we've done a Joy Harjo book. So Native American literature and scholarship seems 
to have become a through line in this podcast and I'm happy to have it. So anyone who has recommendations for more stuff, reach out to me and we'll include it. I love it. Dr. Steves, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a pleasure. I want to talk to you about archaeology for hours and hours and hours, but you have to go do other things because you're an archaeologist who has to keep getting her work done. So thank you so much. We hope to have you back another time. Thank you for inviting me. Our guest next week is Russ Choma, who is a staff writer at Mother Jones. We're reading Edwin Way Teal's Wandering Through Winter. It's a really cool book about driving around the United States and looking at all the cool ecology that we have and all the interesting life that happens in this vast country of ours. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. My kids and I had a family band called the Mother and Child Band, and we started out busking. I taught myself to play guitar. My older son played banjo. My younger son played amazing harmonica. We had the occasional washboards, and my daughter played a tub bass. And we were just like this rockabilly yeehaw sound. We had so much fun. And then we started playing gigs, and we did some recordings. And that was before going to do my undergraduate degree. But that was a lot of fun. I kind of miss it sometimes. Can these recordings be found on the internet? No. <laughs> oh.